we are uh, in a conversation about how to have a better life. And um, today we're going to talk about how to have a better life, uh, a better worship life. Um, and, and I'll get to that in a minute, but first I want to tell you something about myself that may give some some shed some light on this subject. So I grew up in the southern part of the United States, so everybody recognizes that much. Um, uh, I grew up in, in the in the rectangle there, so I'm going to zoom in on that. So this is uh, this is that portion. It's the southern portion of New Mexico. You can see the the Rio Grande there, uh, uh, the the snaky green thing um, in the middle of the desert, and then um, there's like a mountain range to the east of it. Um, that's called the San Andreas Mountains. And then on the other side of the San Andreas Mountains are two characteristic shapes. You can see them from space. Uh, the um, Valley of the Fires, it's a lava bed from an old uh, volcano from uh, 10,000 years ago, something like that. And then the White Sands, um, uh, the world's largest gypsum sand dune deposit, so right there. And um, uh, south of the Valley of the Fires and east of uh, the White Sands is, is the town of Alamogordo. That's where I grew up. So I'm going to zoom in on Alamogordo. It takes some zooming in because it's not a big town, so... So, um, so, um, so that's my house. So, um, finally, a couple of zooms later, here we are. That's that's my house up in the north end of town. But I want to tell you about uh, something about um, uh, twelve blocks south of, of where I grew up. So that's uh, the the little rectangle there. So the reason I want to tell you about that is because I spent a lot of time there in seventh and eighth grade because that's where my middle school was and it's also where my church was, the the church my family worshipped in. So I'm going to zoom in one last time and show you uh, um, what what that looked like. So um, so there you can see um, the the middle school uh, on the one side of the street and then the the church on the other side and. Uh, Sometime like late in high school, they, I, I, I don't know, it could have been in first grade, I don't remember, but it seems very late. They built the new church building, and um, I honestly, I couldn't describe anything in there because I don't know anything about the, the it, it just didn't stick with me all these years. But the fellowship hall used to be the church building. That was the old church building while they were saving money to buy the new church building. So, um, so um uh, I, I had the opportunity to visit there a couple of years ago, and so I'm going to show you a picture of what it looks like from the the place where you see the star there. So this is where that star was in the in the previous one. So we're standing at the star. So there's the fellowship hall. You can see the middle school across the street and the, the new church building up there behind the uh, fellowship hall. So so um, this is the the interior. And it didn't used to look like that, but it looked a lot like that. Um, so uh, I remember they had the, uh, the tile floor with the Predefined um, uh, uh, location, so you knew where to put the pews. So, so it was very easy to set up and take down. Um, not not pews, uh, chairs. So, so it was all pre prearranged. But I wanted to point out this: um, it had a tile ceiling, and I was I was delighted to see it still does have a tile ceiling. And it's got bricks along the side of the the building. And the reason I point those out to you is because when I was in middle school, I could tell you how many tiles there were in the ceiling. <laughs> And I could tell you how many bricks there were along the wall. And the reason was because, you know, you know what the psalmist said? Uh, the one thing I ask of the Lord, the thing I seek most is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in the Lord's perfections and meditating in his temple. I don't think he was talking about meditating on the number of bricks, right? <laughs> I think he had a different vision of what worship could be like. That Now, I, it felt to me like I was spending all the days of my life in that building. <laughs> 
but it was really just like an hour every weekend. But boy, it was a long hour. So, um, so uh, I, I, I read in the scriptures how there are there are these people who have this great experience, and and um, I have a pretty good experience of worship. Um, it's actually it's it's gone downhill a little bit since I become pastor because I start thinking about should I shout hey 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 now or or, <laughs> or things like that. But um, but. But uh, I have a better experience of worship, but even so, it's not as good as the psalmist uh, describes. Um, it's certainly better than I had uh, when I was in middle school. But if we're asking about the question, how do we have a better life? I think a big part of that is how can we have a better worship life? Now, um, my guess is you all know how we can have a better worship life. You all have a clear picture in your mind of what would make our worship life better. So, um, you know what it is? Is we need a pipe organ. We need a great, great big pipe organ that dwarfs the choir loft. That that's what we need. And so, if we had that, then we could have a excellent worship life. And some of you think, no, no, that's not how you do it. First of all, you replace the red carpet with brown. Second of all, you replace the pews with chairs, and then you add stadium seating. And if you did that, then you could have a great worship experience. Others say, well, you're on the right track, but you've got to turn down the lights. It's got to be dark inside. Because if you can see what's going on around you, then it's just not going to work. Some people say, actually, you need light, and you should occasionally point it up at the industrial ceiling. You need to have like that Walmart look. You know, if it's not, if it's not like that, then it's, it's like, no, what you really need is light show. Yeah. If you've got a light show, then you can have a great worship experience. And some people say, well, a light show is important, but you've got to have the big screens, big, big, bright screens. And some people say, you know what? You better just hit all of those things because otherwise you won't have a great worship experience. And some people say, I can't believe you left out decibels. That how can you have a worship experience that doesn't peak at 108 and have an average of 97? How can you possibly worship unless your ears are ringing? So how do we have a great worship life? What does it take? And I think as, as, as uh, church-going Christians, part of the answer should certainly be, well, let's go see what the New Testament tells us about about these sort of things. How do we, how do we navigate, uh, these things? So if we go to the New Testament and we look, what we see is, is they really aren't concerned about whether you should have smoke machines in your worship. They don't even bring up what kind of lighting you should have. Um, they don't talk about decibels. So there's not a lot of guidance. In fact, I think if we went to the, the writers of the New Testament, if we went to Peter and Paul, James, and we said, how can we have a great worship experience? They would say things like we talked about with the children. They would say, you should sell your property and your possessions and share the money with those who have a need. And then you can worship together in the Lord, in the temple every day and meet at homes for the Lord's Supper. And the Lord will, will smile on you and bless what you're up to. But at the same time, they could say, and you know what? We don't do that. We don't have a great worship experience either because we have fighting. We have people who have rings and fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and we have people who are poor and dressed in shabby clothes. And we're still trying to navigate that. So even though we've got a vision of what worship should be and how it can be great, we sometimes fail in that area ourselves. So so, um, so there's not a simple... Uh, a, cookbook that you say if you just do this then everything will be perfect and you'll have great worship so 
So what I want to do is I want to look at the, the big topic and say, look, there's some things we know about worship, but the New Testament isn't going to tell us all the things about lighting and smoke machines. It's not going to tell us a lot of stuff because the problems they were concerned with are different than our problems. Some of them we still have, but not all of them. And so what I would do as I was, if, if I was thinking to myself, if I could go back and, and tell, you know, kind of a Marty McFly thing, get in my DeLorean and fly back to, to middle school and tell my younger self, what he should be doing instead of counting bricks on the side of the of the church, I would say this. I would say worship is not an obligation. Worship is a discipline. And it's easy to confuse those, particularly because my mom pretty much thought it was an obligation. <laughs> but what I would say is see if you can look past that. See if you can get past the idea of it being an obligation. And instead, think of it as a discipline. And by discipline, that's what we've been talking about so far. We talked last, last week about the discipline of prayer. And we should look at worship in the same way light, that it's something that doesn't come naturally, but we do in order that we would enjoy it better later. It's like learning to play tennis. It's like learning to play the piano, that there are things that don't come naturally to us, but we do them as a discipline so that we can enjoy them later. And I would say worship like that. So um, uh, we see that Jesus engaged in worship as a discipline. He went to, uh, when he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. It says, as usual. Uh, different translations put it different ways. Some of them say it was his customary habit. Some people say it was his custom. And, and what they're getting at is this idea that Jesus went there, not because there was going to be a great speaker this week, although that week there really was, um, but um, because because it was his discipline, it was his habit. He went to worship every Sunday or every Saturday because it was his um, his uh, habit. So uh, we should engage in worship as a discipline, not as an obligation. And there's a, there's a follow-on thought to that, which is you can fool yourself, but not God. So if you go to worship and you say, you know what, I'm not feeling it, that's okay. That comes with disciplines. There's days you don't feel it. You go to the gym, and at least my experience, I have never, in the two years I've been going to the gym regularly, um, I have yet to go to the gym uh, you know, thinking, I'm so looking forward to this. I always feel better coming out of the gym than I do going into the gym. And so so you can fool yourself. You can kind of psych yourself into it. You can say, I know that I'm not feeling this right now. But if it's really just, you know, this is nothing. This is dead to me. Uh, this is an obligation. You know, I'm not going to try and intervene in any families if there's middle schoolers who need to who need to follow their parents' instructions. But I would tell adults that if you're just phoning it in, If you're just showing up and thinking, you know, this will make me look better or this will get God off my back for the week or something like that, you have permission to not come. In fact, in fact, uh, you have more than permission. God instructs you to get out. Um, in, in the, the book of John, uh, Jesus says, uh, in John's biography, uh, Jesus says this, the time is coming when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for such as these people who will worship Him that way. And through the prophet Amos, God said this. He said, away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. And that was a common complaint in the prophets. In the book of Isaiah, we read God speaking through the prophet Isaiah. He says, when you come to worship me, who asked you to parade through my courts with all your ceremony? Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts, the incense of your offering disgusts me. That's God. He says, He says, don't come here if you don't mean it. You may not feel it, 
but you should mean it. And if you don't mean it, don't come. It's not going to get you any brownie points with God, so don't do that. But you can come if you're not feeling it. In fact, Paul says to, in his letter to the Ephesians, he says, he says that this is an act of will as much as it is the work of God. He says, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new neighbor. He says, he says, take off your old cloak and put on this new cloak. It's a voluntary thing. You say, you say, you know what? I'm not feeling it, but I am a new person. And you can psych yourself into uh, acting the way that the scriptures tell you you are. So, so you don't have to come, uh, but uh, and there's a, there's reasons why you shouldn't come. But if you if you aren't feeling it, you should ask yourself: Is it just because I'm not feeling it today, or because it really isn't meaningful to me? So, um, so uh, that's that's the big idea that I would tell my my twelve uh, year old self. Um, but you're all here. And maybe some of you are counting, you know, how many boards we have in the ceiling. I don't know. Um, you know, uh, tell me later, not now. Um, so, um, uh, so you're here, and so you are already engaging in this discipline. So, so the question that that we may have is is why do I need to hear this? I'm already doing this. But but maybe you didn't do it last week, or maybe you didn't do it this summer when you know the cabin was so appealing, or maybe it's not you. You come as as regularly as you can, and and you do feel better when you leave than when you come in. But maybe you know somebody. Maybe there's somebody in your house. Maybe there's somebody at work who has said, you know what, I don't I don't buy that whole worship thing. You know, I don't even know why they get together for their little sessions. You know, what's up with that? So why do we engage in this discipline? Why do we engage in it? You know, it doesn't get us to heaven. It, it, Jesus has already done that. That when we worship God, it does. It's not. It's not like the secret, and God checks to see our attendance. And uh, yeah, that was a long summer. I see. You know, that's that's not the way it works. That Jesus has already gotten us um, our salvation. So why do we do that? Well, there's some secular reasons um, that I could tell you. There are surprising health benefits of singing. So you know, the choir's starting up soon. You might think about that. You know. How long do you want to live? <laughs> Cecilia. <laughs> and, um, and that's not just singing, you know, worship itself. So, so over and above singing, there are actual health benefits associated, you know, with, um, with worship. But, but, um, but, you know, you can worship anything. You can worship pizza, right? But what I want to add, I want to, I want to finish our, our time together by talking about how worshiping God makes your life better. I actually don't think worshiping pizza will make your life longer, right? I think if I go back and read the fine print, I think there's some things that, that are probably going to give you some trouble. So how does worshiping God make your life better? And so what I want to do is I want to look at some things the Scripture tells us how worshiping God makes your life better. So the first thing is that God gives you rest. This, is, this has to be the, the starting place. And um, how you spend that rest is up to you. Maybe you should count the boards on the ceiling. But... Um, but the, the scriptures are crystal clear that the, the purpose for worship is not to give God something he needs, but to give us something we need. So uh, in Genesis we read, God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from all his work of creation. And in Ecclesiastes, the preacher says that God has planted eternity in the human heart. He says that there is something we need besides physical rest. We need spiritual rest. We need to actually rest in God. The... Um, the theologian St. Augustine, writing in the 400s, he said, he said, our hearts are restless until they rest in God. 
that when we gather to worship God, we experience the rest of God in a, in a special way. So, so first of all, we are, we get, we receive rest. And second of all, we, we, um, are refreshed. So, um, if you think, if you think of the, uh, the story of the Exodus, Moses and Aaron, they go to, you know, they go to Yul Brynner, they go to Pharaoh, and they, they, they tell him, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go so they can build me a pyramid. No. So they can build me a sphinx then. Okay, how about if they just, I want to co-opt them so they can work on my projects instead. No, that's not what he says. So they can have a festival in my honor. So, let them go so they can have a festival. Jesus says that the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people, not people to meet the needs of the Sabbath. In the book of Leviticus, and I'm sure you all read that regularly, that if I checked your Bibles, it would just flop right open to Leviticus. But in the book of Leviticus, in, in, a, in a lengthy discussion of all the details of the, the, the ritual law of, of the people of God, it's describing all of the different uh, um, uh, festivals and Sabbath observance and so forth. And it says, in addition, uh, over and above this weekly holiday, in addition to the Sabbath, there are the Lord's appointed festivals, the official days for holy assembly that are to be celebrated at the proper times each year. So in the life of the people of God, there were three mandatory feasts. You had to stop. You had to go to Jerusalem. You had to celebrate this festival. And so one of them was a week long. It was called the uh, the uh, uh Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then there was the Feast of Weeks, which was just a day long. Um, and then the, uh, there was the, the Feast of Booths, which was another week-long festival. So you'd go to Jerusalem and you'd party for 15 days out of the year right there. And then there was one fast, uh, one day long. So the purpose of these festivals was to be a refreshing time, a, a time of, of recharging your batteries, of, of filling up your fuel tank too. So, so, uh, we are to be refreshed in worship. That worship should be refreshing and it's, we, we do our best here to make it refreshing. The third thing is your direction is recalculated. I was trying to think of the word, you know, you can see I'm trying to get R's. I'm trying, I'm, you know, hitting that thesaurus pretty hard to find R words. But this one, I was trying to think of, of, of what, what, it, what I'm getting at here. And you, you know the feeling, you know, you're driving with a GPS and you miss your turn. And it doesn't say, I told you you should turn earlier. No, it says, it says, recalculating. Right? It, it doesn't, it doesn't, it assumes you had a good reason to screw up. So it doesn't nag you or complain. It simply says recalculating. And then it says, you know, at the, at the next light, turn, you know, and, you know, basically go back. So, so we need that. And the reason we need that is because, because our hearts are idol factories. John Calvin said our hearts are idol factories in the, um, in the book of Habakkuk, the, the prophet um, uh, addresses the people and God speaks to him and says, What sorrow awaits you to say, who, who say to wooden idols, wake up and save us. To speechless stone images you say, rise up and teach us. Can an idol tell you what to do? They may be overlaid with gold and silver, but they are lifeless inside. And I know none of you actually do, did that this week. None of you did that. But my guess is during the week, the thought passed to your mind that if you went ahead and upgraded to the 4K TV that your life would be better. <laughs> or you thought, you know, I'd like to go see the new model year cars because it's about time. Or maybe you're thinking, you know, if this is the best time of year to trade in the camper 
because you know because uh, or, or to buy one because people are people are trading them in, right? It, you're, you're thinking that there is a shiny idol that would make your life better, and by coming to worship. God says, God simply, he doesn't nag you. He doesn't say you're a terrible person. God loves you. But he says, here, recalculating. When we come to worship, we remember that there are things that are more important than the flat screen TV or the Apple Watch or whatever whatever little idol. Uh, and I'm not saying you bow down and worship it, but the thought passes through your head. So would my life be better if only I had that shiny thing? And worship is an opportunity for God to recalculate our direction. Paul gives one example of that in the in the letter to the Corinthians. He says, every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. It's a chance where when we gather to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we actually have that chance to rehearse among one another to proclaim that there are things that are more important than the 4K TV. There are things that will feed our hearts and set our direction better than a new camper. So we are recalculated. But we are also renewed. And by renewed, I mean made dude. Christianity says that, that, that we become new creatures, that we're not simply trying harder. We're actually made new, that we, we experience the life of Christ, that we have, we have life of the kingdom. We have eternal life in us already because Jesus has reconnected us to God and the Holy Spirit is at work in us, making us into new creatures. So we are renewed in our worship. And one of the things that's striking to me as I read the New Testament is I see how closely that is that idea is related to worship. You see it particularly well in the, the letter to the Colossians. Uh, Paul, Paul has written about this new life, and then he says, Let the message about Christ and all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. And sing psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms to God with um, thankful hearts. He's connecting that renewal, the the, the remaking of us, the, the new life that we have been given with the act of worship. And I'm not sure if he's saying that the worship uh, flows out of that new life or if he's saying that when we gather and when we are, when we uh, have the opportunity to recalculate, we, we are naturally drawn to worship God through that. So I don't know which side of that is the, is the front end and which is the back, and I'm not sure if there is one. He says the same thing in, in Ephesians. He says, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to you, among yourselves and making music to the Lord in your hearts. So he's talking about this kind of worship um, as this worshipful experience as a place where we're made new. And then in the book of Hebrews, we read this. We said, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. The, the good works are there in you. God has made you a new person. And now let us figure out ways to motivate one another to actually do that. To, you know, you have been made new, but you won't know it until you go out and try to do something new. And so let's get together and let's provoke one another. The, the word is used to, to drive an animal down a path. Let us goad one another into acts of love and good deeds. He says, and let us not neglect meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. He says, this is a purpose of gathered worship, that when we get together, that, that we can do that for each other. When, when we're up on the mountains and we see something beautiful and we say, OMG, it's beautiful, you know, it would probably be a little bit more worshipful if you'd actually say, oh my God, instead of OMG, but, but that's an act, act of worship. But when you do it with a collection of people, when you gather as the people of God, then we can go to each other. We can we can sing songs and 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 we can experience um, how we can um, live out the new life that God has given us. 
So you are renewed. Number five, your relationships grow deeper. And this is, again, this is another reason why we gather in worship. Paul says, in fact, that that is really the point. He says, in the middle of a lengthy passage in the the first letter to the Corinthians, he's talking there, they're having this whole thing about who's got the best spiritual gifts and our worship is more off the hook than yours because we got like prophecy and people speaking in tongues. We got some crazy stuff going on in our worship service and it is awesome. You got to come down. It's like the first century version of the light show, right? Um, This is the sound show. And, and Paul is saying, yeah, that's, that's great. That is great. But he says, Prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will become useless, but love will last forever. And when he says that, he's just echoing what God said through the prophet Hosea. He says, I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. So it's not just love on the horizontal plane with the people around us, but it's also love with God that in the vertical direction, that as we think and we, we, we grow close to God, that our relationships are all deepened. Peter says that is ultimately what God is doing. God is building us all into a spiritual temple. And maybe in that spiritual temple, there's some 12-year-olds who are counting the bricks on the wall, but we know it's more than one. We are all collectively being cemented into this temple. And the psalmist says that God inhabits the praises of his people, that he is enthroned in the praises of his people. So these relationships are actually part of what God is doing. He's building these relationships. And lastly, lastly, God rejoices over you. When we worship God, that is not a one-way street. That is not simply me saying, oh, God, you're so awesome, and God, you know, kind of heard it before. You know, that's not what God is doing. God is actually rejoicing over us, that we worship God and God rejoices over us. Luke tells us the parable of the lost um, the lost sheep. And he says, in the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed straight away. Jesus is not talking about the angels. I mean, maybe the angels are rejoicing too. But he says, God is rejoicing. There is joy in heaven. So when you go out during the week and you decide that if you just got the new car, your life would be better. And you come back to worship God and you recalculate when you get in here. That that act of repentance is the kind of thing that makes God rejoice. And in the... the um, the letter, uh, the the book of the prophet Zephaniah, we read this. God, the, the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. This is how we have better worship. We have better worship and we have a better life uh, with a better worship life when we experience the rest that God has, the refreshment that God offers us, the recalculation of our direction and our purpose, the the uh, opportunity to be renewed, the opportunity to build deeper relationships and to experience God rejoicing over us. These are the things that we receive in worship. In the first century, the Roman poet Juvenal was writing about the different people groups that made up the Roman Empire. And when he got to the Jews, he said they're lazy because they take so much time off. Because they would worship every week. 
because he didn't understand this. For him, the gods that, that inhabited Roman temples, they demanded things of you. They did not rejoice over you. And so when he heard that the Jews would spend a day every week and then these extra festivals just to worship God, he thought, well, they're just lazy. They have no ambition. We know better. We know that these are the things that God gives us when we gather for worship. So there's an easy application this week. Come back next week. <laughs> so, amen. So, um, so, uh, we'll see, we'll see about the sound checks and the, uh, the 99 decibels and the light shows. But come back next week because these are the things that God will give you no matter where you worship and no matter how. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks uh, that, that we have the opportunity to worship you. You don't hide. Um, you actually um, reveal yourself so that we can, we can meditate on you and delight in who you are. That you give us a community of faith to, to help us to enjoy um, singing and, and um, to uh, sometimes provoke us into acts of love and good deeds. Lord, help us to appreciate worship as not an obligation but as a discipline. And as we practice this discipline, Lord, help us to enjoy it more and more. We pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.